I recognize that the Sunday after Easter is in many ways like December 26th. There's been this big buildup, this crescendo to this moment of celebration. And then the morning of December 26th rose around. And it's very easy for the Sunday following Easter to fall into that category. That's why for the next three or four Sundays, we're going to be looking at different passages in the New Testament that remind us that Easter, the celebration of Christ's resurrection, is not just something relegated to one Sunday. That the Christian life is defined by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because I think we have a tendency that when we think of the resurrection of Jesus, we think of it as a past event that validated all that Jesus taught. He rose from the dead, therefore what he said is true. Now, that's true. He does, his resurrection did validate what he did, what he taught. But it's much more than that. Or we tend to think of the resurrection only as a guarantee for the future. We remember the resurrection of Jesus and we are reminded that one day, just as he rose from the dead, we too, who are in Christ Jesus, will rise from the dead also. Which is true. But the resurrection is so much more than that. You see, we think of it as the past, we think of it as the future, and what we miss is the present, the present tense reality of the resurrection. So that's why we're going to be looking at passages starting today in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. So I draw your attention to these 11 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. May God be glorified in the reading and hearing of his word this morning. The late Dr. Bruce McIver was the pastor of Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas for over 30 years. 
After his retirement, he wrote a book of anecdotes entitled Stories I Couldn't Tell When I Was a Pastor. It's a a great book full of just humorous stories of his not only ministry at Wilshire Baptist, but all throughout his life. He passed away uh, several years ago, but I always remember one story that he wrote in that little book. It tells about a time when he was uh, working with doctors for his second heart surgery. He was having a hard time finding a doctor who'd be willing to do the operation because at that time, and this is looking back into the 1980s, it was going to be extremely risky. Finally, his doctor got him in touch with one of the finest heart surgeons in the land. He was able to arrange a meeting where that doctor agreed to do the surgery. And they went through all the hoops that you jumped through to arrange for this to happen. And he said he remembered laying in his room there in the hospital the night before the surgery. The surgeon came by just to check on him and to be sure that everything was ready. And as he was getting ready to leave, Bruce McIver looked up at him and said, Doctor, can you fix it? The doctor was already at the door with his hand on the handle, and he simply turned around to Bruce McIver and said, Sure, open the door and walked out. McIver reflected on that. Sure. There wasn't arrogance in that. There wasn't pride. There was just confidence. Can you fix my heart? Sure. The next day, he went through surgery for over 12 hours. Everything went well. When he went through recovery and was removed off the life support, later that day, the doctor came in to check on him. And as he was getting ready to leave, once again, Bruce McIver looked at him and said, Before I came in, my oxygen was down. Everything else was down. Doctor, will I have enough oxygen and blood supply now? Am I going to be okay? The doctor looked at him and said, Sure, and left. Once again, not arrogance, not pride, just sure. A week or two after he was home and was going through recovery, he had a conversation with his wife. They were laughing about this doctor's answer, one-word answer, sure. And his wife related to him a conversation she had had with the doctor after the surgery. She had asked the doctor, will he have a good quality of life? Now, we expect the doctor to say sure at this point, but rather than that, the doctor matter-of-factly said to Mrs. McIver, I repaired his heart. The quality of life will be up to him. In Jesus, we've been born again. The scripture is clear that in Christ, we are new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. We are forgiven. We are justified. We are right with God because the righteousness of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus has been applied to us by faith. Now, after that, the quality of life depends upon how we are willing to walk with God. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is crucial to that quality of life we have in our relationship with God. That's the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. He's talking about the quality of life we have as believers as we live in the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Romans is really in many ways the doctrinal hub of the New Testament. 
If you wanted to look at a very quick overview of the book of Romans, it would be like this. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul writes about how we all have a problem. That problem is sin. That is humanity's problem. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The question then becomes, how can that problem be solved? Where chapters 4 through 8 deal with the problem of sin is solved by faith in the righteousness of Jesus by grace and the Holy Spirit filling us. Then chapters 9 through 11 deal with the question of, well, what about Israel? What about the people of God? And then chapter 12 through the end of the book deals with applying the truth of Jesus to how we live daily. Now, in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has been emphasizing that we are saved by faith. How are we saved? By And that's what he goes over time and time again. He uses Abraham as the model of that. Abraham was not saved by works. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness because, just like Abraham, we are saved by You're getting it. But this brings up a question. You see, there's something that can be troubling about the true grace of God. What about sin? The argument has been made, if we're saved by grace, then what does it matter how we live? Why not sin to get our fill? In fact, look back to chapter 5 at verse 20. Look what Paul wrote. Now the law came in, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. So the logic was being twisted by some people. If sin gives an opportunity for the grace of God to be demonstrated, why not sin all the more? The more our sin, the more God's grace operates. If we are saved by grace, then why obey? We're not saved by works, nor is our salvation maintained or kept by works. Furthermore, if the righteousness of Jesus is applied to us and we are saved by his righteousness, our works cannot add anything to the righteousness of Christ. I mean, would you not agree that the righteousness of Jesus is absolutely perfect? Please say amen. How can we add to that? If our works cannot add to the righteousness that is ours in Jesus, then why should we worry about living apart from sin? Well, Paul clearly answers that question in verse 2, by no means. Don't, even, don't let that thinking enter into your mind. That three-word phrase, by no means, is emphatic in the grief. Paul is saying that thinking should not enter into our thoughts. Why should we not sin because great, so that grace may abound? Because sin always brings with it death. Always. Sin will always be destructive. Whether we gauge it as a big sin or a little sin, it is always destructive. And that destruction is contrary to the resurrection life we have in Christ. You see, the commands in the New Testament, love your neighbor. Flee sexual immorality. Forgive those who, who harm you. Those are not given so that we might work to earn our salvation. Those commands are given to point us, to teach us, to show us what the resurrection life is like. 
What has Jesus secured for us in his life, in his, his resurrection? A life that is marked by love and forgiveness and grace. And living how God intended. So what he is doing in the commands is not setting this standard and saying, you have to attain this because we can't. But he is saying, keep in mind, the resurrection of Jesus has enabled you to live life as God intended it. How does God intend life to be? Of forgiveness, of grace, of prayer, of purity. And all those are ours in the resurrection of Jesus. To engage in sin is to live life less than God intended. And it will always bring destruction. Always. Think of it like this. Suppose you go through your back door and you walk on your deck. And you notice that a piece of wood looks like it's starting to rot a little bit. This is surprising. So you, you look and inspect a little closer and you notice this white little insect maneuvering around. It's termites. No, no, no. So what do you do? Well, you've got an option. You can remove that piece of wood. You can remove part of your deck and build a new deck there. But guess what's going to happen if you don't take care of the termites? You're going to be back in the same problem. You see, when we are, are messing around with sin, we're like building a deck over the termite mound. We're not dealing with the root problem. Well, the root problem was dealt with in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why as Christians, we must remember that we have died to sin. Look at verses 2 through 4. You notice where Paul emphasizes this. How can we who have died to sin still live, live in it? Don't you know that if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death. Now it's important to understand what is meant by died to sin and how we died to sin. You see, some have taught that when Paul said this, to say that we have died to sin means that we don't feel the temptation of sin anymore. Some have even gone so far in the teaching of holiness to say, well, if you're experiencing temptation, then you've not really died to sin. But that interpretation cannot be true. First of all, that can't be accurate because it's incompatible with Paul's concluding exhortation in verse 11. He says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we're unfeeling towards sin, such an exhortation is unnecessary. If that's what dying to sin means. Furthermore, it's incompatible with Christian experience. Paul doesn't speak of sin having died. Sin is still very present. He says, we have died. Sin one day will be destroyed and, and killed, as it were. But right now, it is still very active. So Paul uses the image of death to describe our relationship to sin. He's helping us to understand that sin has no more power over us. That's why in verses 6 and 7, he uses the analogy of a master and a slave. He says, we know that our old self, our old person was crucified with him. In other words, when Jesus died by faith, we died also. Now why did he die? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we're no longer enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
The master has authority over the slave. But if that slave is set free, the master no longer has power and authority over that slave. Now it's interesting here that sin is not understood as just an action, but as a power that resides within us and around us. A power that can enslave so that we have no other choice but to obey it. But in Jesus, we are set free from that power. We no longer have to sin. Sin is no longer our default position. Jesus has set us free from the authority of the power of sin. That's the point of verse 7. One who has died has been set free from sin. That's the freedom we have as believers. We do not have to engage in the destruction that sin brings. I've shared with you before stories of growing up with my older brother, Doug. If I ever write a, a story of anecdotes, it may be growing up with Doug. I love my brother dearly. And growing up, he was the, in many ways a typical older brother. Of course, he had the policy that he could beat me up any time, but nobody else could touch me. It was a mixed blessing. When we were real young, of course, we had the big console TV and only three stations to choose from and one of those stations went down there would often be that sign that would come up on the TV saying please stand by I remember being with my brother watching TV when that came on one time please stand by so you know what my brother made me do Mark I want you to go stand by the TV <laughs> that's what it's telling us to do go do it now that's what I did it would come on I would go stand by and I don't know how often I did that and then the time came, I realized, wait a minute. This has no bearing on me. Why am I listening to him? I don't have to listen to him because I'm getting bigger now. Plus, mom and dad would be on my side. And I was, I didn't have to do that. Sin will tell you, this is what you have to do. You have to do this. But now we can say, I'm not under the authority of sin. Why? Because I've been united with Jesus. That's the key idea in this passage. By faith, we are united with Jesus. You can see it woven like a, a thread throughout the entire passage. Look at verse 3. Notice you've been baptized into Christ. That's the language of union. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him. The language of union. And if we're doubting that, look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall be certainly be united with him in a resurrection. It's the language of being one with. It continues. Look at verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8. Now that we have died with Christ. Everything speaks of the fact that we are in union with him. That word union means being grafted into it's like a, a branch that a horticulturist may bring and place into another tree so that at some point the tree grows together so you can't tell where the graft begins and where it ends. Or maybe a, a skin graft that a surgeon may do where you can no longer tell where the skin was grafted on. It's seamless. That's how we are in Christ. And this grafting into Jesus is signified with baptism. That's why he says if we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. You see, when a person is baptized, it's a means of communicating that you share in the death of Jesus. 
Often we associate baptism with cleansing, being washed of sin. Once again, that's accurate, but if we stop there, we don't understand the full import of the symbolism. Baptism is about death. It wasn't just used of dyeing a cloth a different color. Baptism in the time of Jesus often evoked images of violence. It was used of people being drowned, of ships sinking. That's why in the Gospel of Mark, what does Jesus say? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm to be baptized with? He was talking about his death. You see, baptism brings us to share in the death of Jesus. I've shared with you before the story that Will Campbell, who was a 60, 1960s activist, wrote in his, his little autobiography, uh, Brother to a Dragonfly. Grew up in Mississippi, and you can remember when the revival came through town at the Baptist church, and he went down and was saved, and the Sunday came, they were having a baptismal service. People were lined up, getting ready to be baptized, and Will said he went down, and he was standing in line. His brother was still a skeptic, wasn't sure about all this, and he had taken a seat up on the hill watching these line, this line of converts making their way into the water where the preacher would get them, put them under the water, and bring them up, and as he was watching this, he became more and more concerned about the safety of his brother, Will. He literally got up and he ran down to Will, who was standing in line, and said, Will, I've been watching this guy. You let this guy do this, a person could get killed letting somebody put you under the water. Don't do this. Will Campbell said, it took me 20 years to realize that was the point. Baptism, I'm identifying with the death of Jesus, but not just the death of Jesus, but newness of life. Once again, I draw your attention to verse 4. If we've been united with him into his death, we share his death. I've died to sin. Guess what? Just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. That's saying that we have died with Christ and we share in his death. We share in his resurrection so that now the life we live, believer, we are living because Jesus came from the dead, raised in newness of life, and we share in that now. So that if the power of sin is no longer abiding within us, what power now abides within us? The spirit of Christ, the resurrection of Christ that enables us to live as Christ lived. You see, something has to fill that space. Think about when you clean your garage. What happens three months later? It's filled back up again. That's why Paul is laying out this paradigm for life and saying, you've died with Christ. He has cleaned you up. He has filled you with his spirit. Now, don't fall back into the patterns of the old life because that's going to bring death and destruction into your life. And that's not who you are in Christ. Don't live less than who you are in Christ. Jesus, you've been cleansed, purified. Enjoy reading history, and one of the great events, or I should say great is not the right word, infamous events, was the Great Chicago Fire in 1871, where the city of Chicago was pretty much destroyed. The puzzling thing about that fire is it literally jumped the river. If you've ever been to Chicago, you know the Chicago River goes in the middle of the city, and the question was, how did the fire jump the river? Well, it jumped it because of this. That river was a cesspool. It was literally filled with waste. So literally, the river caught fire. That's how it jumped it. 
Even years after that fire, hundreds of thousands of, thousands of people were dying annually because of disease by this river. So eventually, engineers set in and said, we've got to do something about this. So they began digging canals. They began digging and moving dirt and building gates so that on January 2nd of 1900, a gate was opened that allowed Lake Michigan and the power of the Great Lakes to flow into the Chicago River. Flowing with so much force, it reversed the course of the river. And it pushed the filth out. New water flowed in. That's what happens in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, sin doesn't have dominion over us. That's why he says, for the death he died in verse 10, he died to sin once for all, but he lives, he lives to God. So that death has happened, we have died to sin, now we live in the power of the resurrection. That's why in verse 11 he says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So it comes back to our thinking. Do we see ourselves primarily as sinners under the power of sin that we can't stop sinning? Or do we recognize we are saved by the grace of God and the power of the resurrection is dwelling within us? Now, that means that when we do slide back in our old patterns, God's grace brings us back to himself. He doesn't abandon us. But he's saying, you don't have to go down that path. You have to think in your mind. That's where the spiritual disciplines come in. Prayer, the word, fasting, all those things help us to come to the truth of who we are in Jesus and who he is. When I was in elementary school, I had a speech impediment. I struggled with saying ours. The red rabbit, and even now I have to think about that would be the wed rabbit. And I can remember going to my speech therapy classes in elementary school. Miss Barbara would help us work on uh, passing a ball. When you caught the beach ball, you had to say a word that started with an R and working through that. And I can remember, and even now, thinking as I say something with an R to break that pattern. You see, sin's power has been broken. But its presence is still here. And we have to get in our minds. We live in the resurrection power of God. That's what the resurrection means now. That power is within you. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will. It starts with our thinking. To reflect on and to know the power of the resurrection that is flowing within us. This morning, I want us to begin just by thanking God. That he's provided all we need for salvation. Then I want us to pray, Lord, help us to live the resurrection life. You've given us this, he's given us the spirit to do that. And I recognize this morning that there are areas where the power of sin may gain a foothold again. And that may be what the spirit of God is saying. It's that area that you've allowed the power of sin and He's saying this morning, reckon yourself dead to that. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. But know the power. You may need to come and kneel at this altar and pray, and it's open to do that, to know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If anything, it is God saying, I want you to know the joy of the resurrection life. I want you to know the peace that comes from living in the power of the resurrection. 
Heavenly Father, thank you that we can say we have died to sin with Christ and we have been raised in newness of life. And Father, as we await the day when the presence of sin will be eradicated, we ask for your grace and your mercy and your spirit to fill us to overflow that we might walk in newness of life and enjoy, Lord, the resurrection. We recognize that our enemy is a liar. He wants to convince us that it's no big deal, that it's all right. But, Father, you are telling us you have something better for us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to seek that. In the name of Jesus, I pray.